Hi, my name's Trinity. I'm part of a team that created the Global Credit Score Panel Podcast Program as part of the Global Leadership Initiative at the University of Montana. Our goal is to explore global credit score systems to inform fellow students and other interested parties about challenges some encounter in the credit score system, as well as possible improvements that could help prevent credit scores from becoming barriers to entry and mobility in the financial sector. Join us at our Global Credit Score panel channel to hear interviews we've gathered with various experts and those that have studied credit scores at length. Or visit us at our website at globalcreditscorep.wixsite.com. Happy listening! All right, that should be recording right now. All right, um, so thank you, Dr. Bassens, for joining us today. Uh, we're really excited about your background and the paper you wrote on um, exploring the different ways to do credit scoring using. Um, phone data and the social network analytics. And so we'd like to ask you to explain a little bit more about your background for our viewers today. Okay, thank you very much for having me, Beta. A great initiative, by the way, the study on uh, credit scoring for social mobility purposes, a great initiative, so congrats on that. Um, so my name is uh, Bart Balsens. I'm a professor of big data and analytics at the Catholic University of Leuven in Belgium, close to, to Brussels. Leuven is very known for various things abroad. One of the most popular things is, uh, is beer, actually. Uh, the Stella Artois beer is being brewed not far away from where I'm located right now. And obviously also our university. We have one of the oldest universities in the world, founded in 1425. And that's the university where I work and where I do research on data science um, on developing new algorithms, but also innovative ways of analyzing data, like using uh, called detail record data for credit scoring, which we'll, uh, which we'll talk about later on. And besides my appointment and uh, here at KU Leuven, I also have a part-time appointment as a, a guest lecturer at Southampton Business School uh, in the United Kingdom. That's uh, in a nutshell, more or less uh, who I am. Perfect. And could you explain a little bit about how you got into this avenue of research, specifically in the area of credit scores, and um, how did you decide to apply these kind of different techniques to studying credit scores? Yeah, um, so I started doing credit scoring in my PhD, which I finished in 2003. And then uh, afterwards, um, there was this Basel Accord that became very popular, not because of my PhD, it was a mere coincidence, uh, but the Basel Accord basically enforces financial institutions and lenders worldwide um, to develop credit scoring models. And the Basel Accords, I got very fascinated by them and uh, started doing more and more research in credit scoring. And uh, so we did lots of research on techniques to uh, model credit worthiness of uh, retail and corporate applicants. Um, we also did research on how to validate those techniques, how to stress test those models, and how to successfully apply them for risk-based pricing, for example. So that's how I got involved in credit scoring. And I basically, I collaborated with a worldwide network of, uh, of financial institutions and, and financial service providers to see how credit scoring can be successfully used in practice, but also to see what the challenges are, because thanks to the many collaborations that I had, I actually bumped into various uh, interesting research topics. Ooh, could you talk a little bit about some of those challenges? Is there anything that you've decided to tackle? Yeah, sure. You know, um, that's a very, very good question because um, there's been 
so many techniques that have been suggested in machine learning, uh, like regression techniques, like decision trees, like random forests, like neural networks and deep learning methods. You may have heard of, uh, of some of those. And we tried all of them for credit scoring. And the thing was that we wanted to squeeze the last piece of predictive power out of the data and get it into the model. But having done this quite extensively, at some point, we, the, our research kind of stalled in the sense that we couldn't squeeze anything out of the data anymore. So if we wanted to boost the performance of credit scoring models, um, it made no further sense to look at new techniques or to develop new techniques ourselves. But we started thinking about what if we kind of look at the data instead of the technique, right? And look at leveraging new sources of data uh, instead of using classical um, behavioral data, sociodemographic data, we are uh, looking for new sources of data that we can then analyze using state-of-the-art machine learning models and hoping to, 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 to uh, further boost the performance of credit risk models in that way. And that's how we got into CDR data, called detail record data. Right. And so that uh, the paper you recently that's one published- to do that. Yeah, that the paper you've just published, um, could you explain to our viewers that don't have like maybe a as technical a background, could you summarize kind of what you found out in that study and what was your purpose for it? Sure. I was in collaboration with um, uh, a bank and telco provider in Central America. And our research question was, um, could we uh, use call network information, like who you call, could we successfully use that for credit scoring? We got a data set from, uh, from, as I said, a Central American uh, bank and telco, where obviously the customers were given, um, um, uh, gave their consent to analyze their call uh, detail records, which allowed us to actually investigate that um, very important research question. Um, and we found that much of these um, networks exhibited to a very large extent the concept of homophily. And homophily means birds of a feather flock together. And that also applies to the economic context in the sense that people often call those who are in their economic circle. So mm -hmm. using that information um, and seeing who you call could then be um, successfully leveraged into credit scoring models and allowed us basically to boost the performance of our credit scoring models. So what we did was we built this whole so just... call network, like the notes were the customers of the provider. The edges were then the, the phone calls that were made, um, and that was then featureized into special types of, we call that network features, and added to traditional sociodemographic data, like uh, marital status, employment status, etc., cetera, uh, which we can then use for credit scoring and as such um, uh, obtain higher performing credit scoring models. Very cool. Yeah, it's a really different approach to credit scoring. And so, yeah, something we're investigating is talking about credit scoring in general. And we're curious, um, in your paper, you also stated that you thought maybe this could be a way for people who don't have any past credit history to have something to be evaluated on. Um, why do you think that's a, a beneficial alternative? It has a beneficial, uh, uh, it has benefit to various types of people. First of all, let's look at developing countries, right? Mm -hmm. In developing countries, um, I mean, um, it's very hard for people to have access to data, to, to, to credit, to have access to credit. And banks also typically lack historical data about the repayment behavior of their customers. So uh, in those countries, banks simply don't have the traditional data to build their credit scoring models. But 
what we see is that in those countries, the usage of um, uh, or is, is very popular, right? So what we can do is we can use the data that we got from, uh, from cell phones, right? From mobile phones and use that to build credit scoring models. So because of not having the classical data available in this particular setting, we can resort to call detail network data as such, giving those people easier access to credit. So that's um, uh, as it concerns to uh, developing countries. In developed countries, it also if you have people that are accessing the credit market for the first time, also there in that particular case, banks do not have historical data available. So again, call detail records could present a very interesting alternative in this particular example to give people access to, um, to, uh, to the credit market. Great, yeah, and in our, our research, we called that something as a barrier to entry. So people who um, maybe come from a background where either their family or they don't have any credit score, and that's something where they're trying to get into the credit market for the first time, like to buy a house, a car, Maybe That's get a right. loan for school. And so, yeah, we found that just the fact of not having a credit score can keep people behind. And so I think that's an interesting alternative there. And um, I guess in terms of that, uh, we were wondering that, you know, if sometimes there can be uh, maybe some unintended consequences, though, of using different data. And so we we're curious. You did mention in the end of the paper that um, you would want to make sure this was only used in positive ways. Was there any kind of ethical questions you came up if, you know, if what if someone, uh, someone's calling history would negatively affect their credit score? Um, yeah. Is that a possibility? Yes, I think it's very important uh, to always, first of all, tell customers, and we're legally uh, obliged to do so, and I think it's a good thing, to tell uh, all your customers which data you uh, gather about them and uh, how you process it. Right? And in uh, Europe, we have GDPR, uh, whereby every customer also has the right to be forgotten. That means if at some certain point a customer says, I want all my data to be erased, then the company should take care of that. So that's the first thing. Uh, customers should always be properly aware of what data is gathered about them and how it is used. Next thing is very important, is that all your credit scoring models should be uh, white box, should be uh, transparent, should be explainable, such that we can always give a motivation uh, a reason to customers why credit has been rejected. Mm -hmm. And that also prohibits the use of pretty complex models for doing credit scoring in a real life setting, such as ensemble methods, deep learning models, and so on, because these are very complex models that don't really give customers any insight as to why they have been rejected. Um, and that's really very important. So two things are important. I think one, on the data collection side, always be transparent what data you collect and how you process it. And secondly, on the post-processing side, when a credit decision has been made, one should always be capable to give uh, the clear motivation if credit has been denied, why? Do you think it would ever be interesting to tell someone like, well, your credit score went down because you were calling you know, your uncle who has a bad credit score, so just stop calling your uncle and your, your credit will go up. Do you think that's Well, <laughs> there, there's a thing, right? That, that you can always trick analytical models. It's the right, same yeah. is, is the same with fraudsters. Once you, it's like implementing a fraud detection model and fraudsters always try to be smarter. Mm -hmm, what right. these, what our techniques do, they uh, detect spontaneous um, mm. behavior, if behavioral effects in call detail graphs. Obviously, if you're gonna deliberately call people 
uh, to boost your credit quality, it's not going to work that way, right? So <laughs> there needs to be a degree of spontaneity in there. Uh, so that's really very important, right? Because, I mean, um, on-purpose behavior will not help uh, boost your credit, uh, your credit scores, I'm afraid, right? Yes. <laughs> that is interesting to think about, though. And um, we're wondering, do you think... Um, do you think there's any possibility that this could, though, um, if calling history is somehow related to people's like current statistics of their like socioeconomic status or a neighborhood where they live, people might be more likely to call their family members or people in their neighborhood who also have like come from the same economic background. So do you think there's any risk of like trapping people in poverty that way? Uh, no, I don't think so. On mm-hmm. the other hand, I think there's 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 even an opportunity of getting people out of poverty, right. because uh, um, I mean, uh, it will allow people that are less um, prosperous <laughs> to mm-hmm. a- actually get access to to credit facilities, and I think that's one of the huge um, benefits that the research in our um, in our paper has shown that. Um, because of that extra data source that now becomes available, you're widening up uh, credit opportunities to a bigger mass of um, customers, which I think is a good thing. I do think you're referring to geographical information, and that's mm-hmm. also a very important source of information in credit scoring. Uh, but that we don't need. Uh, that we don't need to obtain from from call detail records. We can have that from Google Street View data, right? There's yeah. been a, an interesting paper that was that appeared in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, which is a top journal in our field, that portrayed um, uh, the level of prosperity in neighborhoods by um, looking at Google Street View images and looking at what cars were driving in those neighborhoods. Just by looking at fancy cars, they could say it's a very prosperous neighborhood, whereas um, I don't know what other cars. I drive a very simple car, by the way. (laughs) uh, I drive a Renault. And uh, so uh, it's uh, um, by looking at that, at those poorer neighborhoods, you can um, you can uh, then see that these are um, um, uh, probably less creditworthy customers. That, in case they want to have access to credit, maybe other data sources could become more relevant, like the call detail records uh, data that I just that we just came to mention. Right. Yeah. It brings up a whole lot of yeah. questions about just because you have access to data, should you use it? You know, like yeah. What do you think about that? That's a, a very uh, relevant question. Um, the thing is, it comes. It it's it's it all relates to uh, credit risk models being white box. I think that's very mm-hmm. important. But you raise a very important question, because um, obviously um, one of the most important pieces of information. And now I'm going to hit something very sensitive, but I'm going to do it. One of the most important pieces of information in any credit scoring model is gender. Right? Mm-hmm. Men are usually uh, more risky than, than women, right? Yes. That is the case, right? But mm-hmm. thank God for us men, no uh, bank is allowed to obviously discriminate based on gender, which is, uh, which is pretty, um, pretty obvious, right? But what we do see there is that you can have la- latent correlation effects in the data. That means that you leave out gender, but there's other variables in the model. Think about certain types of employment. Think about uh, 
unfortunately, in certain countries, we still have an income gap, salary gap between both genders. So that could all be correlated to gender. So that there we touch upon something very important, um, which should be taken care of from an ethical perspective, is to what extent, if those patterns are presented in the data, how should we deal with them? And I can unravel those patterns. I can show what's in the data. I'm a specialist in letting the data speak and showing what, what those patterns are. But obviously, sometimes uh, I also need the advice of an ethical expert uh, or a regulation expert or re legal expert to, to tell us to what extent certain variables should appear in a credit scoring model or not. Um, it's, it's, it's an ongoing debate. Yes, yeah, that's so interesting. And I'm curious, um, in the sort of the realm of these alternative credit scoring models, are there any other um, ideas that maybe you haven't been able to research, but you've come across? Is there any other kinds of alternative credit scoring that you think would be like a ethical or equitable way to do it? Kind of within uh, analytics? I think there's more and more data sources that become available. Mm -hmm. So there's, um, we talked about call data records data. There's also been some studies on social media data, like right. your friends on Facebook are. Um, uh, an ex-PhD student of mine worked on that very topic and found also that uh, you know, fraud defaulters are more likely to be connected with other defaulters on, on Facebook and also tend to like the same pages, which is also oh, interesting. Yeah, so you can look at uh, uh, not only the direct connection on Facebook, but what you like and see whether there's some common interests uh, uh, there. So um, there's data that we have that we gather from Google, there's data that we web scrape, etc. So there's more and more data available. And using the techniques that we have, I can very easily highlight what is the important data, uh, but obviously it always comes with an ethical with an ethical challenge. And the ethical challenge is really very deep because um, you know, one should inform customers uh, about what data is collected about them and how it is being used. But one should also educate customers about mm -hmm. that because it's not, I mean, we've all been through those uh, checkbox lists, lists yeah. which are like pages, pages long. Nobody mm -hmm. reads them. Everybody scrolls down and says, I agree, but nobody is actually uh, aware of, of what they're actually signing. And that's something that we should also uh, create, I think, in a credit scoring perspective is not only is, is, is raising that awareness with your customers, is educating them and telling them, look, this is what we're doing. This is how we are gathering data. This is how it could potentially be used to your benefit, but also it could also be used um, against you because the more data you're disclosing, obviously, the more the bank can also find um, potentially statistically significant patterns to discriminate bad payers and good payers because that's the ultimate aim at the end of the day for credit scoring models. But people should be properly informed about that and educated. That's really very important. Yeah, definitely. And do you suppose, I guess, with some of these alternative methods, do you think more of them are aimed at increasing access to credit for more people or is it usually just helping the banks better determine who is uh, a profitable customer or is it sometimes both i think many banks nowadays try to uh, combine both right so okay. obviously they want to boost the performance of their credit risk models from a um uh, from a statistical perspective, analytical perspective, say these are the good pairs, these are the bad pairs, but they also want to widen up um, the access to the credit market, right? And that's, uh, I think that they're trying to also do that because if we look at developing countries, there's there's a huge potential there and there's a, 
Uh, obviously, it's to everybody's benefit that many of these developing countries start further or continue further developing, right, and, and turn into well-developed countries. So winding up the access to credit markets is in, uh, you will see that appearing in the mission statements of many uh, banks nowadays. Good, yeah, that's so interesting. And I guess from the international perspective, since you are living in Belgium, um, do you know anything about the Belgian credit system? Could you tell us a little bit about how that works? I've worked with some American banks as well. So I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I yeah, okay. worked with uh, uh, Bank of America and uh, some of the other banks in the, in the U.S. Okay. Um, yeah, sure. I, I know how the credit scoring models work. So they all, I mean, they all are estimating three, three key risk parameters, which are the probability of default, which is the probability of uh, um, if you apply for a loan that you're going to go into default, yes or no. Uh, they will also uh, um, estimate the loss given default. That means if you default on your loan or loan obligation, how much are you going to, what's the percentage of the exposure, right, uh, that you're going to default on? How much money will be lost? Indicated as a percentage of the third parameter, which is what we call the EAD or the exposure at, um, at default. So banks typically estimate those three key parameters probability of default, loss given default, and exposure at default, and then combine these three to calculate what we call um, expected loss, uh, which is supposed to be covered by provisions, and unexpected loss, which is then supposed to be covered by um, by capital, right? shareholder capital or equity. And uh, uh, there's I can zoom into the techniques that are being used mm -hmm. there, um, and if I can give you uh, one advice, I, or if I can give you one um, one, one thing that's maybe interesting is that those techniques are typically very simple regression techniques because experience taught us that um, typically a very simple logistic regression. I'm not sure whether you're familiar with that. Uh, a simple logistic regression model performs really well in um, differentiating between the good and bad pairs, right? And these are the techniques that are commonly used by banks worldwide in the US, in oh. Belgium, and across Europe and the rest of the world that oh. use statistical credit scoring. Yeah. So you think the, the Belgian system is very similar to the American one? Is there any yeah. differences you can think of? Yeah, we, the regular you have you guys have other regulations. So we have oh, in Europe right. the Basel regulation. Basel is a city in Switzerland. In the US, um, the Federal Reserve and the OCC um, came up with regulation which is quite similar with some very small differences. Um, in um, in uh, Europe, we also have IFRS 9. I don't know whether you've heard of that. And mm. uh, the US, you guys have CECL, C-E-C-L, uh, which is an equivalent thereof. But it all boils down to estimating those three parameters, PD, LGD, mm. and ED, but using them in different ways. So there's some very subtle differences in the way um, they will be used. Using, yeah. So I think that's the possibly the differences. Maybe countries use their credit scores in different ways. And in the US, one thing we've been investigating is that maybe it's not how credit scores are calculated that is an issue, but maybe how they're used. Because here, it's very common for employers to check yeah. a credit score. I know. When you apply for housing, you have to get your I credit know. checked, even insurance. FICO scores, yeah. You guys have yeah. FICO scores, the yeah. score between 300 and 850, which is used by employers, insurance providers, utility providers, and so on. Yeah. I think, yeah. I have some, my reservations with this. <laughs> I have some concerns with this, to be honest, because then you're, you're using your credit scores no longer for what they were originally meant to be used. And uh, yeah, I think uh, sometimes it can go too far. I think so. Yes. Yeah. Because sometimes, I mean, if you're a bad credit score and you apply for a job, I mean, you, and you can't oh, get a job to... because of a bad yeah. credit score. You can never get out of your economic situation anymore. Right. Exactly. And, so, uh, and I think, yeah, you should give the people the opportunity if, if 
if the the candidate has a good fit for a job, I mean, CV wise, and then you should not look at the credit score is my opinion, right? Yes. Yeah, because we were talking about, you know, data models are only as good as the data you feed them. And so if yeah. if you keep people in these self-perpetuating cycles where they can't get a job, they can't get housing, how are they supposed yeah. to improve their credit no. score? So, no, no, no. Yeah, I, guess, no. I yeah. don't think, no. I don't think yeah. you should. I don't think it's a good idea. No. Yeah. And so you don't do that in Belgium. Is that? No, we don't do that. No, no, yeah. we don't. We, and not in Europe. Really? Are there laws Europe. against it or is it just not common practice? Um, but, but this is country specific. Um, I would guess there are laws against it. Uh, it's not done that I can tell you um, um, there. But what's also is you guys have the FICO score and uh, by Fair Isaac Corporation, that's the score that you're referring to, right? And for mm-hmm. Isaac is a firm that has been founded already in the late 60s of the previous century. So the firm has been around for quite a while and every American has this US score. So it's really very uh, uh, ubiquitous that that score is all over, all over the place. So everybody uh, can have it. And that's why it's being used that much. But in, in, in Europe, I mean, we don't have those credit bureaus available like um, like uh, you guys have for Isaac we don't have that right and it's oh. uh, certain countries have it but even then it's all the scores that are being developed by those bureaus are only being used by banks and not by uh, any other institutions or firms interesting so if someone someone like changes countries does their credit score follow them or is it typically only with the banks that they it would have to be a new we don't have an integrated European credit score wow, system. No, the credit score will not follow them. No. Oh wow! So credit scores then? Um, is there any kind of like national credit blacklist or anything like that, or is it just? Yes, yes, we have that. that. We have that. that. Every most countries will have that. Yeah. Okay. Most countries cool. will have that. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating because that's um some of the other people we're interviewing is about kind of the sociology of using these credit scores and how that affects um, societal impacts of people in their jobs and employment. So yeah, I'm curious about all that, but yeah, I think that's everything we're gonna ask you for today. We really appreciate um, all of uh, your time and it's really um, enlightening conversation. So um, yeah, thanks again, Dr. Vassens. Thanks, Beta. It was a pleasure uh, talking to you. Very good questions and uh, yeah, good luck with uh, with your interesting initiative. Great job. Thank you.